I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash pen sound. Today I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Jen McCreary, the Philly-based poet whose recent full-length collection, And Now My Feet Are Maps, is available from Ducey Press, whose other works include The Dark Mouth of Living, Horseless Press, Ab Ovo, Ducey Press, The Doctrine of Signatures, Singing Horse Press, the Philly small press founded by Gil Ott in 1976, and Odyssey and Oracle, Least Weasel Press, who was a 2013 Pew Fellow in the Arts for Poetry and since 1998 has co-edited Ixnay Press with the poet Chris McCreary, publishing chapbooks and journals of new and experimental writing. And by Patty McCarthy, author of L&O, From Little Red Leaves, and Book of Hours, and Table Alphabetical of Hard Words, among other works whose writing has appeared in many journals, including Colorado Review, Ducey, Fanzine, Ixnay Reader, Lungful, the Poetry Project newsletter, and The Tangent, who has taught literature and creative writing at Queens College, Loyola University, Maryland, and Towson University, who lives in Philadelphia and currently teaches at Temple University, and by Frank Sherlock, the current Poet Laureate of Philadelphia, and also a 2013 Pew Fellow in the Arts, whose recent collection of poems is Space Between These Lines Not Dedicated, Ixnay Press, aforementioned Ixnay Press 2014, whose projects are often collaborative, including The City Real and Imagined, which was written with C.A. Conrad as a revisioning of public spaces in the city of otherly love, as the two set out on self-guided psychogeographical tours through Philadelphia, each beginning at Love Park, and whose current project as Poet Laureate is Write Your Block, which gives Philadelphians the opportunity to explore their neighborhoods through poetry. Welcome, Frank, back to the Writer's House. Oh, thanks, Al. So tell us just a little more about Write Your Block, because it's a great project, fascinating. Sure. Write Your Block uses the city real and imagine as a jumping-off point, to uh, not only decentralize the city of Philadelphia in terms of locale, but also to make it a a larger participatory poem that people um, in every corner of Philadelphia can map their own neighborhoods, their own surroundings by way of poem. And I'm hearing that people are really responding positively to this idea, so... Patty, welcome back to the Writer's House. Good to see you. Thank you so much. Jen, hi. Hi, Al. So today we four have come together to talk about a poem by the late and much-missed Gil Ott. The poem is called The Forgotten. It was published in Ott's book Public Domain of 1989. Our recording of him performing this poem comes from a Segway series recording at the Ear Inn in New York City on February 19, 1989. So here now is Gil Ott reading The Forgotten. The Forgotten. Wound may be too great to finish telling. No source to it, the illness moves. Every object blank when I am looking in my mind among injuries. The poem to think, better of coincidence of a sensory world shunned the acid. The red out of the cat's mouth proud you a sucker to his face. Hit his hat hatchet job on you've worked for, despair of, class of violence wants the very rocks off that hill. 
chase him down a crease onto the street and under a truck, under and gone. Alive, tolerate the equivalence of your pain. The mosquito in the way, the Mayan in Salvador, Atitlan, you're done for playing along. The price you pay or get out. I've made terms, put the hemo, coil and solution up my sleeve, me wheeled to a poorer neighborhood. A chorus of hard comparison. Out every brick vault. Grew disoriented to took ambulatory, sharded out, away from me, out. You know, I, for better or for worse, I think of this poem as about pain, understanding pain, making something of pain, managing pain and illness. Insofar as I'm right, where would you begin to talk about that? In preparation for talking about this poem today, I was rereading his introduction to uh, the anthology um, No Restraints, which was an anthology of disability culture. And in his introduction to that anthology, he talked about, uh, well, he talked about a lot of things, but one of the things that he talked about uh, was in, invisible disability. And so um, when I was reading this poem, I was thinking about that a lot and how um, the beginning of the poem points so much toward the interior, um, but also the forgotten wound or this illness that has no source to it. Um, and, and so this disappearing or invisible illness or pain that seems to open up the poem in the, in the first stanza. Mm. Jan Frank, what, what do you think he means when he talks about illness moving, the illness moves? How do you, how do you deal with moves at that moment? Well, I think the way he's talking about how illness moves or pain moves, and also the way he moves around in the four stanzas of the poem, he seems to be trying to get a lock on the source of the pain, the source of the illness. And that's the indeterminable thing that's that, that he can't get a fix on. He can't find a source. Um, it's this constantly moving object. And there's no clear origin. So I'm, I'm reading this through Gill's idea of uh, not only that the personal is political, but the physical is political. And um, this poem comes to me as sort of, there's, there's a, a gentrifying force that is the illness. That wow, is part of the movement, because when we get down to uh, the Mayan mm -hmm. and Mosquito, the price you pay or get out, being wheeled to a poor neighborhood. Wow. Mm -hmm. Can you go a little further with this? Uh, sure. Well, I think about the interview with uh, C.A. Conrad um, for Banjo Magazine uh, years ago when he talked about his, Gill's magazine, Paper Air, which had 12 issues. And while he came across a lot of the work coming out of the, uh, the origin circle and people who were uh, in contact with Sid Corman, he also viewed Paper Air as what he thought every magazine should be, a political instrument. And when mm -hmm. he finally realized that as a political instrument, he felt its work was done. Wow. What do you think, Patty, of this reading? Oh, I, I think that is a great reading. I think that's <laughs> incredible. Um, I mean, I was thinking about how the poem starts, you know, as I was saying before, in this really looking inward way, right? I'm looking in my mind among injuries, the poem to think. And then the, the poem um, increasingly moves outward, uh, that by the time we get to the third stanza um, with the mosquito and the Mayan, and, but then by the time we get to the last uh, lines of the poem, that it's out every brick vault, grew and took ambulatory and sharded out away from me, out. Um, and, and so the, the poem 
takes off from this uh, space of looking inward and moves increasingly wider and and looking outward at the world. Um, But so, uh, you know, what Frank said about the physical as political um, makes a lot of sense to me, for sure. Alive, tolerate the equivalence of your pain. The mosquito in the way, the Mayan in Salvador, Atitlan, you're done for playing along. The price you pay or get out. I've made terms, put the hemo, coil and solution up my sleeve, me wheeled to a poor neighborhood. A chorus of hard comparison. Out every brick vault. Grew disoriented to took ambulatory, sharded out, away from me, out. Can we, each of us, take a turn at trying to work with the first line attached to what turns out to be the title, The Forgotten Wound May Be Too Great to Finish Telling? Let's each try a reading of that. Jen, do you want to start? I think that I look at this uh, quite literally, that it is a wound. It's an illness. It's a pain that's too great to finish telling. It's a poem that he's not going to finish writing. As Patty said, it starts inward and very interior and moves out from the very um, the very ordinary, the very pedestrian um, cat running under a truck, um, rocks being pulled off of a hill to Central and South America, and this idea of um, becoming disoriented, this ambulatory pain, the way that um, he's trying to move it out and away from him. Um, I think that the idea that something is is too great, it's it's too big. It's something that he both can't completely get a lock on and also can't completely articulate or define. It makes me think about um, pain theory or someone like Wittgenstein starts talking about pain. He has this long, ridiculous analogy about a toothache. Hmm. But the thing about a toothache is that everyone feels it differently, and it's the hardest thing to do is to actually describe, to give testimony to mm-hmm. an ache that's very vague. And telling is supposedly a therapeutic thing of externalizing through writing the thing that's a pain. But in a way, and I'm following the radical politics that uh, I think Frank is rightly presuming mm-hmm. here is is part of the premise. Um, you almost don't want to externalize it and get rid of it. You want to have it constantly be a source because there's wounds all around. Um, Patty, you want to try your reading of that first line? Yes. Um, well, uh, you know that the that the title, the forgotten, is also the first part of the first line of the poem, but is is also separate from it. Is broken off from the wound itself, right? The forgotten break wound, um, which may be too great to finish telling. And so if the forgotten wound may not be, be completely told, it can't be pinned down or identified or categorized. And then can it be seen? If you can't finish telling it and if you can't categorize it, um, can you ultimately write uh, better of coincidence of a sensory world? Does it ever become something seen, something that's part of the sensory world? Mm. Fantastic. Frank? Yeah, and I agree with Patty that the idea of the, the forgotten working as a, as a title, when you come right into it, I think you read the forgotten not as any one thing, but that's a larger group. It could be plural, larger, mm-hmm. right. like the disappeared. Right, right, right. right. And that's Salvador I, is in there. It's the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So that's so I was reading it that way. And the idea of the forgotten wound may be too great to finish telling. Um, no one lives long enough to tell that story because that story 
began before us and goes on after us. And to finish a story, you have to start with something, and then you get the next line, no source to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. Wow. Because, you might as well insert, because the illness moves, as mm-hmm. the illness moves. Because it keeps moving. Yeah. Because you're not dealing with a fixed target. Wow, we're done. We're done here, guys. <laughs> we, we cracked <laughs> it. All right, let me, try my, break early. let me try my reading. My reading of the first line has to do with testimony in the sense mm-hmm. of, Um, Not so much trauma, but uh, the open wound kind of problem of how you describe pain, um, how you describe the forgotten. So I see an unsayable X, uh, the thing that needs to be, whether it be be thousands of disappeared or whether it be the trauma of seeing your own location destroyed. Um, So the unsayable X, the very reason that it's unsayable, means that the poet, the writer, has something to say. I see uh, here as it uh, advocating for the necessity of the fragment. Mm. Pain defies wholeness. So I see this as about, at, at least about testimony and also say the forgotten means that my illness, and I guess he's partly being autobiographical because of hemo, hemodialysis. He was mm-hmm. on dialysis uh, because of renal failure. Uh, so the forgotten is an embrace, not simply of the wound that's constantly reminding me that I need a a circulation of blood to stay alive, but I identify with everybody else who who has an incomplete story that needs to be told. Hmm. Any responses to any of that? When you were talking about um, sort of the, the constancy of the wound, I was thinking about this phrase in the last stanza of the coil and solution up my sleeve, right, that it's something that is not only physically carried, but that is um, that is carried sort of in the body's memory and in um, in emotion and in the way that you go out into the world as well, that it's coiled up my sleeve, uh, that it's always there. Up my sleeve is a pun, too, because it's a compound adjective. I see hyphens here, right? Yeah, right. So up my sleeve is partly the fistula that is uh, on in the wrist. Mm-hmm. For the record, I'm showing my where you, you unite the arteries and the veins in order to make the blood flow fast so they can stick you to be able to recycle the blood in hemodialysis. And then up my sleeve has an idiomatic idea of uh, trickery or... Yeah. Magic. Nothing Magic. up my sleeve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like to... Um, the word out occurs several times in the poem from the second stanza, the red out of the cat's mouth, but then in the third, the price you pay or get out, and then ramping it up for the fourth stanza, the final stanza, where he says, out every brick vault grew disoriented, two took ambulatory, sharded out away from me, out. Um, this repetition of out and going back to what Frank said about the personal being political and illness being political and the idea of creating a metaphor whether where you're thinking of the mosquito, the Mayan, these indigenous people who were uh, exploited, who were enslaved, and says that this is the price you pay or get out. You stay and you're colonized by the illness. You are taken over by the illness or you find a way mm-hmm. to get out. And towards the end, he seems to be looking for some kind of door or a way out of the poem and away from the pain. Let me ask you, um, if we were to do a new edition of an anthology of writing about disability or writing of people with disabilities, and we put this in there, what case would we make for this being about disability? 
yeah, I mean, I think that that you could see this in- included in such an anthology. Um, you know, that phrase in the last stanza, you know, a chorus of hard comparison, um, that it is a chorus that you have, that it's multivocal, that you could have multiple voices um, speaking this comparison, but that the comparison is hard, right? Um, that, that it's hard, that it's difficult, but that it also is hard thinking about the body and thinking about uh, the physicality of the poem, um, and that being in this body is hard. Frank, what do you do with a chorus of hard comparison? I mean, chorus is a pretty great word there. Well, I think in that last stanza, so we have, we're looking for the solution or at least uh, some comfort in the situation that has been uh, preceded. So we have this sort of, you know, gentrified force, which is really just a micro-imperialism. And then you get out to, we're going to take the medicine for this because we're going to try to survive through this. And what happens, you're wheeled out to a poor neighborhood and coming back to the title of The Forgotten has been, is being bigger than just that individual. There comes the chorus of hard comparison. Mm-hmm. Here we are trying to make ourselves feel better in this, uh, within this larger wound. And to that end, I think that what Al was saying earlier about The Forgotten um, serving as a title, both singular and plural, mm-hmm. works really well because you can be talking about The Forgotten Wound may be too great to finish telling autobiographically Gill's own illness, and also as a larger, more choral voice for for writing about disability and living with chronic pain, chronic illness. Wound may be too great to finish telling. No source to it, the illness moves. Every object blank when I am looking in my mind among injuries. The poem to think, better of coincidence of a sensory world shunned the acid. The red out of the cat's mouth proud you a sucker to his face. Hit his hat hatchet job on you've worked for, despair of, class of violence wants the very rocks off that hill. Chase him down a crease onto the street and under a truck, under and gone. Let's use the occasion of having a poem talk on Gilot to talk a little bit about Gil's work and his legacy. Let's just each go around and, and do that. Patty, and you can be personal if you want. Patty, you want to start? When I, you know, would think about him now as far as his legacy, it would be both um, Singing Horse Press, um, but Jen could probably uh, talk more directly about that since she had a book on Singing Horse Press, but also um, his engagement and with the community and with the larger arts community and that um, not just the poetry community over here and the arts community over here, but rather um, kind of bringing all of those communities together, right, with the Painted Bride and and in an integrated like kind of way, right. exactly. Thank you. As, yes, yeah, that's right. exactly <laughs> as Frank was suggesting from the right. start. Yeah, yeah, Jen. Um, what I admire about Gill is the way that he was able to bring the political and the poetic together. About how deeply his own poetry and his poetics was steeped in his his work in the disability movement, his work with homeless, his his political um, infused all of that, and I took a lot away from that. I'm also remembering the tribute to Gil Ott event that was here at the Kelly Writer's House and him entering both singing, as he often did, the, the Moon Don't Run on Gasoline, and wearing a T-shirt that said, not dead yet. Yeah, that was <laughs> Which great. Which was yeah. kind of awesome since it was, and he was like, why are we having a tribute now? Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and it was some years before his wait. death, too. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think it's important to say that uh, Gil didn't always, uh, beyond his health, in terms of the poetry community, 
didn't always have the easiest way to go because mm-hmm. he didn't fit safely mm-hmm. into uh, one camp or and another. And he wasn't academic in any way. And, right. So he was outside of, of you know, that kind of uh, sort of easy name-getting. And his magazine, Paper Air, and continuing with Singing Horse Press, uh, I think he he focused on other writers that didn't have an easy fit, but were still, you know, very important uh, to him personally. But Gil thought it was imper- important that other people hear these poets. So I I drew a lot of inspiration out of that because I felt uh, as a young poet that I was uh, someone just like that. And also his commitment to not only the poetry community, but uh, communities in Philadelphia and his projects brought together art and activism in a way that the poetry community at that time, that was not... Um, the thing to do necessarily, particularly in more uh, experimental poetries, um, beyond you know lip service, like doing the the real work, like his uh, arts and social change project, where I had the bus tour of community centers, things like that. I drew a uh, big inspiration from. Uh, yeah, in a way, that. I guess Gill was sort of the first poet laureate of Philadelphia, in the sense that you're being the poet laureate. That idea of of doing that that local work. Right, and there was the precedent was set by poets like Gill. Yeah, exactly. I'll just make sure it's been referred to, but I want to make sure everybody who's listening to this knows that he was the development director, did fundraising for the Painted Bride Arts Center. Um, he got grants that gave the center a second life. It had fallen on hard times uh, and, and uh, helped move from its humble South Street digs to the current home on Vine Street. Uh, and he was also the director of Liberty Resources, which is a important organization for people with disabilities. Okay, so everything we've just said about Gill, how does it get inscribed in this poem? Well, one of the things that I was thinking about was that I hadn't heard that recording of him reading it. And so I went from just my own reading of the text to listening to him read it. And I realized that the poem was so much more various in sound and in tone than it had been in just my own kind of cold reading of it uh, before. Like that second stanza. He's yeah. playing hard. Right. There, isn't uh, yeah, absolutely. Rhythmically. Uh, you know, and so you go from the first stanza with all of these N sounds and O sounds and injuries, sensory, coincidence, um, to write the red out of the cat's mouth and hit hit his hat hatchet. Uh, I mean, there's so few multisyllabic words in the second stanza. It's this kind of, you know, uh, a sort of surrealist staccato sound all of a sudden in the poem. And then the poem stretches out again, the third stanza with tolerate, equivalence, mosquito, salvador. The, again, the sounds get kind of drawn out only to shift back to out and away and sharded and brick in the last stanza. And so the poem is so various in its tone and its sound qualities. Mm. Um, and so that, that he is bringing um, a kind of expansiveness into the poem by shifting back and forth in these ways of sound and, and rhythm. Cool. Jen, your thoughts on this? I agree with Patty. Um, and I think he's also shifting in. I do like that second stanza where he just kind of comes out gangbusters and there's also this lovely there's so much internal rhyme between the out and mouth and proud and the words that you if you aren't careful you're going to trip over like hit his hat hatchet job is really remarkable 
And then moving towards the last stanza again and coming to that line, a chorus of hard comparison. He's made these comparisons from looking internally, the, the poem to think, this class of violence, the cat under the truck, the Mayans. So he's reaching for all of these different metaphors, both kind of lofty and more concrete. And it is a chorus of hard comparison. He can't find the one image um, that's, going to, that's going to satisfy the poem. Mm. Terrific. Frank? Yes, and in terms of that music, um, the street poet George Delaney um, called Gill his favorite poet because Gill recognized that uh, a poem was a song. Mm-hmm. And, and I call George Delaney a street poet because he lived on the street, presumably still lives on the street if he's still with us. And that meant a lot to Gil Ott that George Delaney had that opinion of him. So in terms of pulling in the larger uh, story of Gil Ott, the fact that he uh, had gratitude to hear that George Delaney thought of him as a poet of song was important. And it makes me think that the word chorus, and we've said this before, we've implied it anyway, the chorus is a kind of democratic thing. You hear all the voices. And Mm -hmm. hard isn't just difficult, as in difficult poetry or avant-garde poetry, but hard is hardened. Hard Mm -hmm. is difficult in the sense of life. And comparisons should be hard. There's no easy likening. There's no easy metaphor here. Uh, Well, uh, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise. There's a chance for several of us, including Patty, who's thinking about what to spread wide our Busted. narrow hands to gather a little something poetically good uh, going on in the poetry world. And it looks like Frank is ready to say something. Yes, I'm ready. All right, cool. Um, I want to mention Ann Boyer's new book, Garments Against Women. Um, I'm very excited to get my hands on it. It just came out. Lisa Robertson says that it's a book about seeking to find the forms in which to think the thoughts necessary for survival, then thinking to find the forms necessary to survive survival and survival's requisite thoughts. Wow, sounds great. And when is that coming out? Well, that's out in, now. Now. As far Fantastic. as I know. Yeah, brand new, fresh out. Right? Yeah. Fresh, yeah, it's right. fresh. This Patty, week. we're going to give you a couple fresh, of seconds <laughs> more. <laughs> Jen McCreary, gather some paradise. I'm going to uh, gather some paradise and also put some some good pixie dust on this, uh, Charles, because Charles Alexander has said he's been working on the collected poems of Gil Ott uh, for a while now and believes that it should be on track to come out this year. So the that's collected poems. the collected. Wow, so I that's had no idea. that's a collection that a lot of us have been have been waiting for for some time, and it'll be great to see living and breathing and out in the world Maybe so i'm very excited for be a charles to get that comparison mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go for it. yeah well that's very exciting yeah is he that's our check that'll He's be Chax doing press. it from his press from Chax. Mm-hmm. yes c-h-a-x how fantastic patty are you ready to gather some paradise um well a, a book i'm really excited about that has been out for a, a couple of months but i finally have gotten to sit down and start reading it is banu kapil's new book ban and banu and and which i have started reading several times and keep going back to start it over again because I want to read it in its entirety at once. And when I don't have the opportunity to do that, I have to keep going back and starting over because it's a really beautiful, overwhelming work. And it it, it keeps rewarding my starting over. But I haven't finished it yet, so I have to start it over yet again. (laughs) I like that. So my Gathering Paradise is simply, uh, I just want to read something I wrote uh, just after Gil's death. 
Locally, I wrote it on February 6, 2004. Uh, Gil died at the age of 53. It riffs off something that Gil Ott once said, which is, and I quote, if you take an expansive definition of what poetry is, poetry is all around us. And this is what I wrote. Put together Gill's deeply felt concern about abuses of power with his search in writing for incorruptible forms, and you have a view of a community-based, quote, alternative arts movement that is remarkably clear-eyed. Gillot saw an analogy between poetry and community development organizations. Both, he said, are small. Both are capable of responding quickly to changing conditions. Both are inherently decentralized. Both can defy interposed categories, rules that come from outside. It is time, he once declared, to consider the potential in such linkages. Notwithstanding the stump speech rhetoric there, which was rare for him, saying, it is time to. That's a little too stump speechy for him. But given that, Gill was actually being characteristically modest when he said this because for him it was long past the time he had begun such projects. That a community of poets lived alongside and in connection with people passionate about community development in Philadelphia was and is largely owing to Gill's efforts. People who care about the fate of the small arts here owe him more than we often know. He is in the air we breathe. I know I expand every time I take in his expansive definition of what poetry is. Well, that's all the wound too great to finish telling we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, CPCW, and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Jen McCreary, Patty McCarthy, and Frank Sherlock, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardiner and Tyler Burke and to Poem Talk's editor, Amaris Kachansky. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll be talking about Bob Perlman's poem, Confession, with Bruce Andrews, Kathy Lou Schultz, and Kristen Gallagher. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>